From MTMA, welcome to the Insights Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. You asked why I'm you know, passionate about economics, why I find it fascinating. It's, it's not rational, it's not logical, but it's happening around us every day, all day. So that's my point in investing and understanding economics is to try to figure out what is it that makes the decision process change from the way we think it's going to happen. And if you can anticipate what those changes might be, that's where you get a competitive advantage. That's Tom McDougall discussing behavioral economics and how it impacts the healthcare consumer's decision-making process. We'll also talk to Tom about the growing popularity of economics, its unpredictable nature, and the theories that most impact healthcare professionals. But first, a word from our sponsor. The value-based revolution is on, and we have your roadmap. MGMA's Book of the Month, Navigating to Value-Based Outcomes by Tom Walsh. Whether you're at a single provider office or a national chain, this book will teach you how to capture the data that matters to patients, implement shared decision-making strategies, and thrive in the era of value-based payment models. To purchase or preview Navigating to Value-Based Outcomes, visit mgma.com navigating. Patients are faced with a multitude of choices at every step of the healthcare process. Does your ailment warrant an office visit? Which doctor best suits your needs? And is the cost of a procedure ultimately worth the burning hole it'll leave in your pocket? Here to put this complex decision-making process in perspective is Tom McDougall, CEO of Merit Health Biloxi Hospital. Tom is a serial healthcare entrepreneur, an author, a speaker, a professor, and a thought leader in healthcare economics. Well, Tom, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm, I'm honored to have the opportunity to speak with you. Tell our audience a little bit about your background in healthcare, where you've been focused, and, and really what you're most uh, involved in today. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. I've, I've had a fairly non-traditional path. It began very traditionally. Uh, I've got a bachelor's degree in business management and then went straight to, uh, to a graduate school and got two master's degrees in healthcare administration and business administration. Uh, then moved into an internship type experience uh, with a healthcare system. And that's where my path became very non-traditional. Uh, with no clinical experience whatsoever, um, I became a hospital CEO at age 27. Um, just happened to be in the right place at the right time or some would argue the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, but that led to 17 years of uh, being the CEO of five different hospitals, nonprofit, for-profit, uh, governmental. Um, and at that point, I had another divergent. Um, I decided to become a healthcare entrepreneur, started a couple of companies, uh, completed my doctorate degree in healthcare administration, uh, decided I wanted to try uh, a faculty position in a healthcare administration program. Uh, where I taught management, finance, economics, ethics, and then just recently uh, made a decision to go back to being a hospital CEO, and I'm uh, currently the CEO of Merit Health in Biloxi, Mississippi. Okay. Now, 
one of your areas of expertise is in economics, and you have uh, yes, yeah, exactly. Now you've written that you're a self-proclaimed economics nerd. Uh, just want to know where did that love for economics come from, and um, why should healthcare professionals learn to embrace economics as well? Well, going back to the nerd tag that has been given to me, um, <laughs> I have to admit that my that my children gave me that um, when uh, I w- had gone back to doctorate uh, school so that I could get my doctorate degree. Um, I became more and more interested in economics at that point. And uh, as they were growing up and going through high school and then during their college years, um, I, you know, the dinner table conversations, um, I just, I don't know, I had this urge to impart wisdom in my kids because schools don't prepare them for the real world. So we, we would have really strange off-the-cuff conversations that a lot of times circled around economics. You know, why do things happen the way they do? What does it mean when the Federal Reserve sets an interest rate? Um, and usually those discussions, uh, once once I started bringing them up, my kids would just tell me I was an economics nerd. Um, but then I realized they were really interested in how the world does work um, because they weren't being taught that in school. And so after my kids called me an economics nerd for several years, I decided, you know what, I probably am. And I'm going to wear that that name with pride. Um, My passion for it, though, comes from all of my different experiences, uh, whether it was in an educational setting and actually taking finance and economics courses as a student um, and later teaching those courses. Um, And my time as an entrepreneur, my time as a healthcare administrator, I realized that the theories that we hear about, these economic theories that uh, sometimes are intimidating to us, if you'll take long enough to understand the theory and how it applies, you see them at play in the real world every day. It's, it's constantly around us. And so I became more and more interested in different areas of economics, uh, such as uh, rational choice theory, which I know we're going to talk about some in this podcast, but how patients make decisions about what they're going to purchase, how providers can position their services to encourage purchase from us as a provider. Um, And I just seem to get deeper and deeper into it. Um, And so, yes, with with honor, I wear the tag of a self-proclaimed economics bird. Exactly. Now, Economics has become much more popular and mainstream uh, with books such as Freakonomics uh, and podcasts uh, by that same name that have really, really brought it to the mainstream. Um, who were some of your economics heroes, uh, people that were the, uh, the leaders in the field that influenced you and influenced your thinking? Well, you brought up Freakonomics. Uh, the authors of the Freakonomics series, uh, Levitt and Dubner, they're brilliant. And let me tell you why they're brilliant. Uh, they, they truly understand the theory, but they made a decision that they were going to separate from theory and show you how to apply that knowledge to the real world. Uh, some of the lessons, particularly in their original Freakonomics book, was just fascinating. Um, I, I just... I thought it was so interesting that they would actually spend an entire chapter answering the question about why drug dealers still live with their moms. 
And now some of your listeners to this podcast are thinking, this guy's lost his mind. But that's actually a chapter in the book. And uh, I would encourage all the listeners to pick up that book, thumb through the table of contents, pick one thing in that table of contents that's interesting to you, and invest 15 minutes to read that chapter. Um, And they will find a lot of really interesting things. The point of the book, though, and from the authors, is not to teach you some of these strange, useless pieces of information that you'll probably be never asked about, but to question the world around you, to question why do things happen the way they do? You know, why does the building across the street from an organization remain vacant for three years? What are the economic factors that are at play in that? Um, So there's a lot of different pieces out there that answer those questions. Uh, there's other books that I've read that have been real interesting. Um, there's a book called Misbehaving that delves deeply into behavioral economics. Um, I refer to that as bedtime reading because it'll put you to sleep in a heartbeat. Uh-huh. It's terribly long, but it's it, but it's very interesting in terms of concept. Um, and uh, the if I had a person that would be my hero, it was Michael Morrissey. Um, I had the honor of having Dr. Morrissey as my professor when I was working on my master's degrees in the 90s, and he was also my professor when I went back to get my doctorate degree. Um, And uh, he's very similar to Levitt and Dubner, the authors of Freakonomics, in that he was not afraid to break the mold as an economist and say, you know, we can sit around and talk about theory all day long, but let's apply it. Let's talk about how we actually use this information. Um, So that would be some examples of uh, different people and uh, publications that really shape the way I approach things. Sure. Now, I'm going to use your words to be a contrarian here. Um, In a webinar that you and I worked on together a little while ago, uh, you mentioned that the only scientific field more often wrong than economics are weather meteorologists. So with with that statement, why should we trust economists in economic theory? Well, and that's an excellent point. The, you know, weather meteorologists, um, I'm from Alabama, and there's a gentleman there that is the best known meteorologist in all of the state of Alabama, a guy named James Spam. And, and James, will, you know, just flat out tell you, and, I, and I've met him and gotten to know him personally, he will flat out tell you that a 10-day forecast or a 7-day forecast is just about useless. There's no value in them telling us what the temperature is going to be like and whether or not it's going to rain seven days from now. And he told me one time, he said, he said, Tom, we have no idea. He said, now, when we get in a 36-hour window, he said, I can be right about 70% of the time. And I teased him, and I said, I said, you know, James, how how can you possibly, with a straight face, tell people what the weather is going to be like three days from now if you don't have confidence in it? And he said something interesting. He said, because people are curious. He said, people want to know. And he said, they've gotten used to that weather is unpredictable. And for that reason, I've I've realized that I'm doing my job by giving them the information they would like to hear. And if I'm right half the time, I'm happy. Um, and what I realized when I was studying economics is it's very similar. Uh, the economic theories out there that are most popular and most accepted, oftentimes uh, people act differently 
than we would expect them to act from a theory perspective, much like the weather does. Um, you know, I, I laugh because I look at a seven-day forecast and whatever it says is going to be the general condition seven days from now, I assume it'll be the opposite. Mm-hmm. If it says it's a 50% chance of rain, I assume it's going to be sunny that day. Um, and uh, it, it's become kind of an interesting concept to me. But from an economics perspective, we often see people divert from what we assume is logical action. But to them, it's very logical. I'll use a very common example that most of us can get used to. Um, you know, a pair of shoes. We probably have all worn a pair of shoes at some point in our life that was just not very comfortable. I had a pair of Timberland boots that I wore for more than five years. And and every pair of shoes I've ever had with the Timberland name on it has been very comfortable. But these boots were miserable. <laughs> they were terribly uncomfortable. I hated wearing them. They rubbed my toes. They just weren't comfortable. But but I kept wearing them, Daniel. Uh-huh. I kept wearing them. I, I would wear them every week. I'd put them on at some point, and I'd hate wearing them. And that's a concept from economics because I kept wearing them. And now an economist would say that me purchasing those boots, and I think I paid about $90 for them. They weren't terribly expensive, but they weren't cheap either. I purchased those boots for $90 and I kept wearing them for five years, even though they were uncomfortable. Now, an economic theory is that it is sunk cost. It comes from the cost theory of economics. So I should not have cared that I paid $90 for those boots. Um, If they were uncomfortable to me from an economics perspective, the economists will assume that 100% of the time, people will make a decision in their own best interest, regardless of the money that's already been spent, they can't be recovered, but we keep doing it. And so the economists would get frustrated with me and say, Tom, you're an idiot. Why are you still wearing those shoes? They're uncomfortable. Who cares that you spent $90 on them five years ago? Who cares that you like the way they look from a utility perspective? You're an idiot for wearing those boots. But behavioral economics shifts us to where we understand that people act irrationally as it would be described by an economist, but the individual is acting in what they perceive to be a rational manner. And again, let's go back to, I'm a self-proclaimed economics nerd because I find that fascinating. I find it fascinating that we have these theories of economics that people violate all of the time. Now, we're going to talk in more detail about behavioral economics in just a moment. But first, I wanted you to lay the groundwork um, from a healthcare perspective and just talk about the, the building blocks of economics. What should a healthcare professional know? And we don't expect them to suddenly stop what they're doing and go back to graduate school and, and go deep into economic theory there. But on that foundational perspective, what are those building blocks that can help inform them and help them do their jobs better. Sure. And let, let's talk about let's talk about healthcare economics from the thirty thousand foot view first. Okay. Um, healthcare has to be the strangest industry on earth. And let me tell you why I say that. Because it's an industry that relies almost solely on agents making recommendations to customers of where to go purchase the services. And I recognize your MGMA, so let's use an example. We have physicians telling patients that I think you need to go to ABC for your MRI. 
And patients, the majority of the time, will go there because that's what the physician recommended. The physician is acting as an agent. And then we make it even more complicated that we have separated the patient from the primary payer mechanism. We have what's referred to as a third-party payer. So we have now had a situation where the patient isn't paying the full cost of the service, is being paid by their insurance company, so they are again separated from the economic model. So it becomes this really complicated situation where a lot of providers are at mercy of the strangest industry on earth because of the way the the economics of the industry have been structured. So it ends up being this really odd situation. And as a result, we have no choice but to embrace economics because we have to understand all the factors that are going into this very complex decision process and process for connecting the customer with the provider. So the main economic theories really get down to, I, I break them down really into six. Um, the first one is risk aversion, that some people are going to be more in a risk-seeking mode than others. Some people are going to be risk averters or risk avoiders. And so understanding kind of how those decisions get impacted is one major factor. Another economic theory is adverse selection. What this talks about is that um, primarily in healthcare, it comes down to insurance, that people who believe they are more likely to be ill are more likely to buy insurance. If someone thinks that they do not expect to be ill, let's say they're 23 years old, they're you know, 10 feet tall and bulletproof, they've never had any health issues, they may think, well, that's $300 premium that I have to pay every month isn't worth it because I don't ever use those services. So adverse selection talks about that people who are more likely to be sick are going to buy insurance. People who are less likely to be sick are less likely to buy insurance. So the average level of illness, in other words, people that buy insurance are on average more ill than the general population. So adverse selection is a major factor in what we do in, in healthcare. Another factor is uh, moral hazard, the economic principle of moral hazard. What this gets into is what I mentioned earlier, that as a patient, we don't pay the full cost for services. Perfect example in a physician practice is, let's say, you know, Daniel, you, you know, the flu is starting to go around. So you decide one day you wake up and you think, Huh, I think I might have the flu. Mm -hmm. I don't feel right. I'm achy. I think I've got a fever. I feel a little like I've got some chills. My throat hurts. Um, are you more likely to go to the doctor because you're, you're, you've got some symptoms that may indicate the flu? Are you more likely to go if you have to pay the full cost of the office visit of $115, I think is the average in the United States? Um, or if you have insurance, you're only paying $35. So if you have insurance, you're more likely to go see the physician in the office because according to the principle of moral hazard, if you are not paying the full cost of the services provided, then you are more likely to buy more of those services. So that, that's at play each and every day in every physician practice across the country. Um, so moral hazard is a major factor. 
The fourth category would be cost theory. I already mentioned sunk costs, so I won't go back to that. We also have opportunity costs. The opportunity cost is how you would spend that money on something else. So instead of going to the doctor and spending $35 of your copay, what if you could take your, your wife or your significant other out to dinner? So the opportunity cost is not the $35, it's what you would use that $35 for. The uh, fifth one is agency theory. I've already talked about that briefly also, that agency theory is where you have someone that is providing advice or expertise that helps a consumer make a decision of where to purchase. Um, the physician recommending a certain location for an MRI is an example of where the physician is acting as an agent to the principal or the patient in this case. Um, so that's another theory. Um, and then probably the most common one we talk about is rational choice theory. And rational choice theory says that a patient um, or a consumer just in general is going to make a rational decision each and every time of what to purchase when in their own best interest. Um, and so the key there is that we expect them to do, we, we expect them to always behave rationally and every time they behave rationally. And you know, like I do, people don't act that way. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we do irrational things. Um, so those are the major economic theories. What should uh, someone who works at a medical practice, we don't expect them to uh, <laughs> memorize all of the definitions that you just provided and know it at that level, but what should they know to better inform uh, their practice and their work within the practice? Sure. Well, agency theory is simple. We understand that one. And the cost theories are pretty simple, too. If you can if you can focus in on understanding really three basic things. Uh, one is that someone who has insurance on average is going to be more ill than someone who doesn't have insurance. That's something to keep in mind. The second piece is, is that someone with insurance is more likely to buy the service that you're providing because they're not paying the full cost. And then the rational choice theory is how do you separate yourself from the competition to be a uh, easier to access, uh, more dependable type service than your competitors? What do you do to help with making it easier for someone to make a decision to come to the doctor's office? Uh, do you have online scheduling? Uh, do you have online check-in? Uh, do you, you know, have walk-in times? All of those things contribute to the patient more likely choosing your practice versus a practice that doesn't have those features that are important to the patient. Okay. Now, one aspect of economics that you mentioned earlier is behavioral economics. Uh, we're going to look at that and, and look at how and why patients make the decisions that they do. Uh, first of all, though, if you don't mind, just defining behavioral economics for us and tell us a little bit about its history because I know that it's become, it too has become to the forefront of late. It's become very popular. Uh, you can correct me on his name. I believe Richard Thaler, is that his name? I believe he won the Nobel Prize for some uh, studies on uh, behavioral economics. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, the, the separation is, and I talked about this just briefly earlier, 
economic theory, if we want to just take all of economic theory and put it in one phrase, the phrase would be uh, that people will behave rationally and in an expected manner all the time. That's what economic theory all centers on, is that we expect rational behavior all the time. Now, we've already covered that doesn't happen. Um, and that's what led to the development of the theories of behavioral economics. Because what behavioral economics basically says is that people are not always going to behave rationally or as we expect. And the term that most commonly is put on that is that economists will say that when people don't behave rationally all the time, they are misbehaving. And so this entire new set of theories have come out that have been encapsulated in behavioral economics to explain why people don't behave as economic theories suggest they would. And that has been, over really the last three decades, it has been growing rapidly to understand what are the factors um, that are causing people to misbehave. Okay. Now, we had talked earlier, uh, you appeared on an MGMA webinar. You talked about economic theory there. And in that presentation, you said that to gain a competitive advantage, you must first understand how economic principles and individual biases shape patients' purchase decisions. Um, why is that? And if you don't mind, give us an example of what you mean by that. Sure, be happy to. Um, well, let's talk about rational choice theory. Um, rational choice theory is what I introduced earlier, that uh, people will make rational decisions in their best interest of what to purchase and when to purchase it. Um, so we know what rational choice theory is. Um, the problem is, is that it's not always consistent with, you know, someone's going to uh, make a decision um, that, you know, is the least expensive cost for the MRI they need to have. What they are going to do is they're going to factor in a lot of other things because the cost of the this decision to get the MRI may be watered down because of moral hazard where they're not paying the full cost, they're just paying a copay. So instead of paying $550 for the MRI, their copay for it may be only $100. And so it's a very different decision. If it was $550, they may hesitate. For example, um, I, and I just had it happen recently um, in the last six months. I'm a runner. I run about 15 miles a week. I don't, I'm not one of these marathon runners, but my knees started bothering me. And it started, it started bothering me to the point of whether or not I was, I was going to need to go get it checked. Well, if I was going to have to pay the full $100 for, or $500 for an MRI, you know, Daniel, I'm, I, it, it would have to be falling off before I would go do that. Um, but, you know, that wasn't my decision process. My decision process, well, I've got a $100 copay. Does it hurt enough to spend $100? Um, and so that starts affecting how that occurs also. Um, so it ends up being just this this, you know, this congruence of all these different economic theories that are actually causing me to decide what I'm going to do. Ultimately, you know what I did? 
What's I that? never got it checked. <laughs> never got it checked. Um, I kept running. My knee kept hurting. And then um, about a week later, I thought, huh, you know, it doesn't hurt as bad as it did last week. That's good. And now, you know, six weeks after that, it doesn't hurt at all when I run. Um, so that was all economic theory that was playing into what I decided to purchase and when I was going to purchase it. The win was I never did um, because I just kept thinking, well, I, I'm not sure I want to spend this $100 to get it checked, and things got better. So if I would have had to pay the $500, I might have gone a year or two years before I would have gotten it checked. Um, but what happens in all of this is the, the, you know, the economist would say that I would have already gotten the MRI because it was bothering me. It was affecting me walking around. So, so in my own best interest, I would have made a decision to purchase. But we end up with all these different biases and that's where the behavioral economics comes in. Um, you know, we, we can talk about um, different theories of biases, but they really get encapsulated in a few different things. One is that I have a bias for what I think I already know. Um, that's referred to as a heuristic bias. Um, so I think uh, I know what the MRI is going to show. I think the MRI is going to show everything's negative. There's really nothing wrong with my knee. I'm just being a baby because it hurts. So my heuristic bias was keeping me from making a decision to purchase that. Um, also, I have hindsight bias involved because, you know, I'm, I'm 50 years old. So I've had multiple sports-related injuries over the last 40 years. Um, and I've never had anything serious. I've been lucky. I've never torn an ACL. I've never, you know, had an MCL strain that was serious. You know, I've never broken a bone. So my hindsight bias is, is that even though my knee hurts now, I've never really had a problem in the past that's been serious, so this one probably isn't serious either. Um, so you start having these different biases that will further affect our decision-making. And there's their entire, I mean, there are books about behavioral economics that cover all these different elements, but that's just a couple of examples. Um, you know, I, I, one of my favorite theories is, is Weber-Fechner law. Um, that basically says that, um, and this is behavioral economics, but it talks about that people will behave irrationally according to an economist, but to us it feels completely rational. So let me ask you a question, Daniel. Would If I told you that you know you were gonna, you had already made a decision, you were gonna purchase a radio um, for $35, um, but I told you that if you will drive 15 minutes away to a different store, you can buy that radio instead of for $35, you can buy it for $15. Would you drive that distance? I think I might just take you up on that. It, it might depend on, I used okay. to live in LA. I don't know if I'd want to drive in uh, 15 minutes of traffic in LA. That might take an hour, but. Uh, well, that's fair. <laughs> that, that, that would be, that would be a cost of your purchase is your time. So exactly. valid point, but. You think, but you said you thought you would take me up on it. Okay, so let me ask you another question. If uh, you were in the market for a 55-inch flat-screen 4K TV, and I told you that you can buy it for $500, and that store is very close to you, so you know no drive time factor, or you can drive 15 minutes and you can buy it for $480, would you make a decision to drive 15 minutes 
to buy for 480 rather than 500. I don't think I'd make that one. That seems a little uh, uh, odd to me to just see that shave off just a little bit there. So I don't think I'd have to make that one. Okay, well, Weber Fechner Law, you've just, you've just proven Weber Fechner Law. Let me tell you why. Okay. Because the two things I just presented to you are exactly the same economic question. <laughs> are you willing to drive 15 minutes to save $20? Okay. And the first one, you said yes on the radio, right. despite the LA traffic. Mm-hmm. You, would, you would drive 15 minutes to save $20. But you, on the second question I asked you, you said you would not drive 15 minutes to save $20. It's the same question. But Weber-Fechner Law says that you don't believe that the difference in price for the TV going from 500 to 480 is noticeable enough for you to invest the 15 minutes. But on the radio purchase, it was noticeable. Mm-hmm. And so there are things like this, and this is why, you asked why I'm, you know, I'm passionate about economics, why I find it fascinating. It's examples just like that, that why do, why do people do that? Mm-hmm. It's, it's not rational, it's not logical, but it's happening around us every day, all day. People are making all these decisions. So that's my point in investing and understanding economics is to try to figure out what is it that makes the decision process change from the way we think it's gonna happen. And if you can anticipate what those changes might be, that's where you get a competitive advantage. Well, let's turn it back to the patient point of view. And so ultimately, what does drive patient decisions when they're thinking about purchasing healthcare services? What are those key drivers? Sure. Well, it's really four phases of the patient decision to purchase. Um, The first phase is a decision of if they're going to purchase. So they've got to, they've got to factor in, you know, do I really need it? Go back to my knee hurting. You know, I was, that was my issue was I was, I just never got to the if. I never made a decision that I needed to get my knee checked. Okay. So that's the first step. So if you don't get past the first step, you may never get to the second step. But the second step is after I've decided if I'm going to purchase the MRI, where am I going to do it? Um, What is going to be purchased? Do I want, you know, an MRI? Do I really want to first think about maybe an x-ray instead? Am I going to go to the doctor's office? You know, am I going to go to a primary care physician or am I just going to go straight to an orthopedist? I'm deciding in the second step of what I'm going to purchase. So I've already decided if, now I'm deciding what. Then the third decision is to actually make the purchase. So this is our third step. So I actually make the purchase. Um, I actually go and invest resources, my time, my money, to figure out what's going on with my knee. And then what's become even more common over the last really just two decades is to share my purchase decision. Um, And that's new, and it's new because of social media. Because now we can't just make a purchase and be done with it. I mean, 20 years ago, people would make a purchase, they may tell a few people, big deal. Now, I mean, you post it with the 2,000 people on Facebook or Instagram that are your close personal friends. And that is what's become so interesting now in economics is this ability to easily share with the masses why you made a decision. 
I found that fascinating a while back, about three years ago, I bought a truck. Um, I buy a truck about every six years, I run it to death, and then I buy another truck. Um, that's just what I do. Mm-hmm. That makes sense to me from an economics perspective. Um, but I noticed after I bought the truck, so keep in mind, you know, I've already dropped all the money on this truck. Okay, I've got it, I own it, my truck. The company, the dealership that sold me the truck kept sending me marketing materials about, I mean, basically the message was, hey, Tom, you made a great decision buying this truck. And I thought about it for a while because I thought, I'm not going to buy another truck for like six (laughs) years. Why are they continuing to sell me on something I've already purchased? The answer is this fourth phase of how patients make decisions is they tell everybody. So the dealership really doesn't care about my happiness with my truck. What they hope is that I'm gonna tell everybody else I'm happy. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was happy with my experience with the dealership. And in healthcare, we don't give this enough attention. You know, I, I, you know, back to running hospitals like I do now, I am so interested in every patient and every family member of that patient that came to see them or friend that comes to see them while they're in the hospital. I want every one of those people to be raving fans in my hospital because I know they're going to go back out in the community and tell everybody about their experience, whether it was good or bad. Um, so this has really become important. So, you know, at physician practices, this is why it's become so important that you have appointment times that are kept um, when a patient shows up, that they don't wait too long in your waiting room that they're treated with respect while they're there and that the entire experience is good because you want them to go tell their friends about how great your physician practice is. And so, you, you know, you've gotten past the first three phases. You've gotten past their, the patient's decision number one of if they are going to have an office visit with you. The second one you've gotten past because they decided to choose you. So they decided um, what they were going to purchase in terms of an office visit rather than going to a urgent care or going to the emergency department. The third phase was they actually purchased, they actually came to you, paid their copay, and then you got the fourth phase. You want them to go tell everybody how what a great experience it was. So that was a long answer to your question, but those are the four phases that people go through when they're making these decisions in healthcare. Right, you have laid out those phases and the different building blocks of economic theory. So. What does it look like in the real world when a healthcare professional, a practice, a hospital, when they apply these theories to their practice, to their patients, uh, do you have an example in the real world and what it looks like? Sure, I've got a couple of very good examples. One's a physician practice, one is a hospital. Um, We're entering the world of virtual care. Uh, Whether we like it or not as providers, um, you know, I've, I've heard people say that uh, telemedicine is disrupting the healthcare industry. And to some extent, it really is, but we haven't seen anything yet. It's really coming. Um, and so that has created a really interesting dynamic with physician practices. Um, so a physician practice in this day and age, you, you live and die, pardon the healthcare expression and no pun intended, right. but you, you live and die with patients coming to your office because that's the way you're, you're situated. You're used to bricks and mortar. You got people in the office. And, but what we're seeing is, is that patients are really pushing for having virtual care options where they don't have to go to, go to the practice. 
because the cost to a patient has really shifted as our as our society has shifted. Um, when I've got an office visit appointment, I don't even think about my copay. You know, I, I think I have a $35 copay under the insurance I'm under right now. That has no bearing on whether or not I will go to the office visit. What does have a bearing is it's going to take me two to three hours of my time to do it because I've got to, I've got to, number one, I've got to take off work. Number two, I've got to drive to the office. Number three, I'm going to sit in a waiting room, even if it's for 15 minutes, I'm sitting in a waiting room. I'm not doing anything else. Then I actually have my office visit. Um, then I may have to go to the pharmacy to pick up a prescription and then I got to drive back to work. So I got three hours invested. $35 doesn't matter to me. I'm real interested in three hours. So a perfect example is a busy physician office practice that everything's humming along. Everything's fantastic. Um, but the patients don't want to come see you anymore. There's projections that patients are now more and more saying that if they can avoid coming to the office and still receive care, they're very happy and they'll pay a premium for it. So, you know, a theory right now is we're seeing physician office practices and record numbers start adding virtual care visits. Um, so that's a that's a pretty good example. Um, the second one also uh, is related to hospitals. Hospitals are having to rethink the way they provide care. Uh, 20 years ago, you never would have seen a hospital post how what's the average wait time in their emergency department. But now it's become pretty common. About 20 to 30 percent of hospitals across the country will put on a billboard or on their website how long the average wait time is in the emergency department. It goes back to the same concept. People are very interested in the time. Um, and to be you know, very contrarian in the view, I'm an advocate for hospitals not only posting their wait times when they're good, but also when they're bad. And the reason is, if I've got an overcrowded emergency department already, I'm already at risk for patients being unhappy with the services that we're providing because they're having to wait a long time. I want to encourage patients that don't have a true emergency to go somewhere else. Go to the urgent care center. Go somewhere that's not as overcrowded because if they keep showing up in my over, overcrowded emergency department, that's just more people we've irritated. And so we, those are a couple of examples of how the industry has shifted and all of that has to do with economics. All of it is economic theory that is changing the way we're having to think and act as healthcare providers. Tom McDougall, CEO of Merritt Health Biloxi Hospital. Thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thanks so much. I, I enjoy it probably more than I should, but again, I'm a self-proclaimed economics nerd. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Insights. Thanks to our guest, Tom McDougall. To learn more about this topic and earn ACMPE, CME, and CEU credit, access Tom's on-demand webinar titled Using Economic Theory to Understand Patient Decisions at mgma.com slash economic theory. That's economic dash theory. Also, don't forget to check out MGMA's Book of the Month, Navigating to Value-Based Outcomes. To purchase or preview the book, visit mgma.com slash navigating. If you like the show, please rate and review it wherever you get your podcast. 
We love hearing from listeners about the show. If you have topics you'd like us to cover or experts you'd like us to interview, email us at podcast at mgma.com. MGMA Insights is presented by Craig Weberg, Rob Ketchum, Declan McGee, and I'm Daniel Williams. Thanks for listening.